Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. As you're turning there, uh, be reminded we are starting a new series today on prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Today we're going to use the sermon as an introduction to prayer and focus on the first line of the Lord's Prayer, what's called the preface, our Father in heaven. And for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the different petitions of the Lord's Prayer. So if you're able, I invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's Word. This is Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Hear now the written Word of the living God. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for your word, the truth of it. And we thank you today that you're teaching us how to pray. Open our ears and our minds to receive your word. If there's one here who doesn't know you, may they come to know you today. And for believers, we pray that you would disciple us, that you would uh, mold us and shape us this morning into the image of your Son. Teach us, yes, teach us how to pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Learning by example. You know, in life, when you learn something new, and you do something for the first time, it's always good when you have a teacher who give you a clear and a concise example or model of how to do the new thing. You know, I can remember when I was 10 years old, I played Little League Baseball. And as a 10-year-old, I was a good or average baseball player, but not a great baseball player. But I remember that 10-year-old season, somehow, at the end of the season, they voted me on the All-Star team. I have no idea how that happened because I really wasn't great. I was just good. And when I got to the All-Star practice, I looked around me, and I saw great players all around me. I mean, these guys could hit, they could field, 
and they were a lot better than me, particularly at, at hitting. But that's when I met Coach Pat Sparger. Coach Pat Sparger had a big red beard and a lot of red hair and glasses, and he had a gruff, rough voice. And I will tell you, as a 10-year-old, that's kind of scary to be around him. I didn't want to be around him. He looked frightening to me. But once I got to know Coach Sparger, I found out that he was actually the best coach in the whole Little League. And he took time with me, and he taught me how to hit a baseball. It was a, it was a great experience. And I watched his example. I watched the way he did things. And when he taught me how to hit a baseball, he taught me what to do and what not to do. For instance, he taught me where to put my hands on the bat. But he also taught me where I shouldn't put my hands on the bat. He taught me where my eyes should be looking when the ball comes and where my eyes shouldn't be looking. He taught me where to stand in the batter's box and where not to stand in the batter's box. And I think for the very first time in my life, I actually listened to someone and paid attention. And I learned how to hit a baseball by watching his example. Now, fast forward to the end of the season. We get to the last game and our team made it to the championship game. That particular game, the Lord allowed me, I went five for five. We won the game, and I got the game ball that game. We won the championship. I finally learned how to hit baseball. But I attribute all of that to the great example I had in Coach Sparger. He's the one who taught me how and how not to hit a baseball. How about you? Who in your life has been a good example for you to learn something new? Maybe it was the first time you were a parent, and maybe your example was one of your parents taught you how to be a good mom or good dad, or maybe you're a boss for the first time, and you think back to one of the bosses that you had in life, and they were a good example, or maybe you play an instrument, the piano or the clarinet, whatever it might be, and you had a good teacher who gave you a good example of how to play that instrument. It's so good in life when we have an example. Now, I mentioned all these stories about examples because today in our text, you saw at Matthew 6, we have a master teacher. His name is Jesus. And Jesus gives us a clear and a concise example, a model of how to pray. In fact, in verse 9, Jesus says it clearly in verse 9, pray then like this. This is your example. Isn't it amazing that Jesus has a desire to teach his followers, give a clear, concise example of how specifically to speak to God? But just like any good teacher, and it reminds me of my coach, Coach Sparger, Jesus starts out by telling us not just how to pray, but he tells us how not to pray. Did you catch that in the text? He doesn't just say, here's how to do it. He says, here's how not to pray. So we see in this text what I call the do's and the don'ts of prayer. 
So today we're diving into this first sermon of, of many sermons on the Lord's Prayer. And as we do that, we're going to see many things. We're going to see the do's and don'ts. We're going to focus on the preface of the Lord's Prayer and see how the Lord's Prayer is a model, is an example of how to pray. We're going to look at the eminence and the transcendence of God in prayer in the, in the preface. But before we do any of that, Let's step back and see what the life work of Jesus Christ has to do with prayer. I mean, is what Jesus did in his life, his death, his resurrection, does that have anything to do with prayer? It does. So let's start there. And if you have your bulletin, there's an outline on the very back of it that walks through four points in our sermon today. First of all, Jesus' life work in prayer. Secondly, we'll look at those do's and don'ts of prayer. Thirdly, we'll look at the model, the example of the Lord's Prayer, which is God first and man second. And finally, that preface, our Father in heaven. We're going to see the eminence and the transcendence of God. But let's look first at Jesus' life work. What does his life work have to do with prayer. Let's start with the Old Testament. Two of the key offices in the Old Testament was that of prophet and priest. What's the difference? The prophet spoke with the authority of God behind him, and the prophet spoke to the people on behalf of God. We could say that the prophet was God's mouthpiece to speak to the people. The priest is kind of the opposite of that. The priest comes with the testimony of the people behind him to God on behalf of the people. So you could say that the priest was sort of the mouthpiece of the people to God. In the Old Testament, we learn that the brother of Moses, Aaron, he was the first high priest. And we know according to Leviticus, that the function of the high priest once a year was to go into the tabernacle, to go through the, mo- through, excuse me, to go through the holy place and go behind a curtain into the most holy place where the Ark of the, Co- the Covenant was, and he was to bring sacrifices for atonement of the people. You see, the priest re- represented all these people in Israel, And as he came to the tabernacle before the presence of God, he couldn't come with his hands empty. He had to bring something with him, the blood of bulls and goats and calves. You see, he was doing that for atonement for not only his sin, but for the sins of the people. And he would come in behind the curtain, and he would sprinkle the blood on top of the mercy seat, which was the top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was a sign of atonement for not only his sins, but the sins of the people. Now, let's fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus Christ comes, and Hebrews says, Jesus is our great high priest. Just as Aaron was high priest in the Old Testament, and all those priests who came after Aaron, Jesus comes as the great high priest. And the Bible says that Jesus went through the heavenly holy of holies, that is, behind the curtain. And when he did, 
he didn't have anything in his hands. There wasn't a bull or a goat or a calf in his hands because he came with his own blood. You see, not only was Jesus our priest, he was sacrifice and priest. That Christ came with nothing in his hands, but actually spilled his own blood on the mercy seat. Why? Because his blood was far better than the blood of bulls and goats and calves. His blood actually covered our sin once for all, giving us eternal redemption. And the Bible says when Jesus died on the cross, when his blood was shed, what happened to that curtain that was in the temple at that point? The Bible says it was torn from top to bottom, teaching us that we have full access to God. And it's right here. I want you to see it. It's right here that we see the impact of Jesus' life work on prayer. Do you see it? The Bible says, because of the great work of our high priest Jesus, you don't need an earthly priest to go into the Holy of Holies for you. You don't even need your pastor to pray for you, for you to be heard by God. The Bible says that Jesus tore that curtain in two from top to bottom. And if you're a believer, if you know Jesus Christ for salvation, you have been ushered into the presence of the Almighty God because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And now you have access to the throne of grace. Do you know how amazing that is? That you can talk to the sovereign God of the universe, the one who created all things, the one who put those planets in orbit, that made the sun shine, who created the entire universe. You have direct access to that God in prayer because of what Christ has done for you. What an amazing privilege that God has given us in prayer through Jesus Christ. I know many of you are reading the book on prayer by R.C. Sproul as we go through this series. Here's a quote from that book. Um, R.C. Sproul says this about prayer. He says, in prayer, the sovereign has condescended to give us an audience that God wants to hear from us. In prayer, God has invited us into the heavenly palace. In prayer, God has lifted the scepter and told us to enter. Come in and pray to me. In prayer, we have access to the very throne of God. That's why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, come boldly, come confidently, not because of anything you've done to get here, but your great high priest, Jesus Christ, he shed his blood, he ripped the curtain in half so that you and I can come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy in a time of need. See that the life work of Christ has ushered you into the very presence of his Father. This is why we can pray because of what Jesus has done for us. And that is why we even pray in Jesus' name. Because it's through his life work we gain access to the Father. But secondly, this morning, 
let's look at what I'm calling the do's and the don'ts of prayer. Look back at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees all will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need, even before you ask him. Jesus, the master teacher, just like my coach so many years ago, tells us what to do and what not to do. Very simply, and first of all, Jesus says what not to do in prayer. He says, don't be a hypocrite. Verse 5, don't be a hypocrite. Now, what does that word mean, hypocrite? If we look at the root of that word, it's actually comes to us from Greek drama, from plays. The hypocrite was someone who would wear a mask. He would pretend to be something he wasn't on purpose. That's what you do in a play. You, you act. And the hypocrite knew that what he was showing externally did not correspond to what was going on internally. He was play acting. He was putting on a show. Well, how does this apply to prayer? I think it's pretty clear. Jesus says when you pray, don't pretend to be something you're not, especially for the sake of those around you, for the applause of men. Now, those in play did it for the applause of men on purpose. It was a show. It was an act. But Jesus says when you pray, don't act. Don't put on the mask. Prayer should not be a show. And Jesus was saying that's what the Pharisees were doing, and you saw it in the text. The Bible says they stood on the street corner at the right time and the right place. They made sure certain people were around, and they prayed. Maybe with eloquent words, they prayed. And Jesus is saying the temptation that they had to do that still exists today. That there's a temptation for all of us to pray, not so that we can speak to God, but for the benefit of of our hearers. We want to show people how spiritual we are by how we pray. Have you ever done that? Guilty. That temptation is real. The temptation to pray for the benefit of others around you, thinking that you're something great, something you're something spiritual. Jesus says that's not how we should pray. We should confess that sin to the Lord. And instead of doing that, what does Jesus say? He says, do something different. Verse 6. In verse 6, he teaches us to remember what I'm calling the privacy of prayer. Go into your room by yourself with God. Now, does that mean every prayer should be private? I don't think that's what it means. We have examples all over the Bible of, of public prayer. But what it does mean is that prayer, even when it's public, it shouldn't be a show. It shouldn't be an act. It shouldn't be like the hypocrite who's just trying to speak to those around him instead of speaking directly of God. Jesus is saying, 
Prayer is something that is to God, not to other people. So this should be done with a privacy towards God and a reverence in that relationship to God because he's their creator. It's for him, it's not for, it's not for others to hear to, so that they can speak nice things about us. So Jesus is teaching us how to pray. Well, the second don't is found in verse 7. The first one is don't be a hypocrite, but do remember the prophecy of prayer. The second one is found in verse 7. Verse 7 says this. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. <coughs> Excuse me. Empty phrases. Jesus is talking about mindless, thoughtless, repetitions or the use of many words without even mindfully or with your heart considering God. In this context, he's talking about a pagan incantation, a pagan mantra that people might say thinking something magical is going to happen without putting any thought or your heart into it. This is what pagans do, Jesus says. They take their minds and their hearts out of it, and they say a lot of words. Jesus says, don't do that. But what should we do instead? Well, first of all, we should understand that the amount of words that we say, that doesn't impress God. God is not impressed if we say things eloquently or if we say a lot of words. That's not impressive to God. And God is teaching us here Engage your heart and your mind. Don't just say things routinely because you think it's the, you, you think it's some, it sounds good or, or this or that. Don't, don't do that. But how can you love God with all your heart and your mind? You can engage God with your heart and your mind. Thoughtfully, purposefully coming to him in prayer. Why? Because this text says God knows what you need even before you ask it. We're not informing God with the amount of words that we use. But we are pouring our hearts and our minds out to God in prayer. Look if we learned anything from that series on Psalms. That the Psalms were prayers written to God from people who were at the highest high of life and the lowest low of life and everything in between. And they were with intention, mindfully, with their hearts, coming to God and laying before God their requests before him. They weren't just saying a bunch of words with no meaning. So Jesus here is teaching us, beloved, the do's and the don'ts of prayer. But then thirdly today, we see the model, the example of our master teacher in verses 9 through 13, the Lord's prayer itself. And as we look at this, we're going to find that Jesus' model is God first, man second. Excuse me. Can you think of a place in the Old Testament where God communicates to his people that he should be first and the need of man should be second? Think about the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of the law. The first four commandments deal with 
man and God. That vertical relationship. Have no other gods before me. Don't make idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. That is all about man's relationship to his creator. What I call a vertical relationship. What we know about God. And God gives us this first tablet, that vertical relationship, before he gives us what I call the horizontal relationship. That is, you to another person, you to your neighbor. Remember the latter half, the latter part of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. That involves us and other people. So what God is saying is, in the Ten Commandments, You've got to get your relationship with me right first before you can get your relationship with anybody else right. We see God first, man second. How about Matthew 22 when Jesus is asked, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. What's the order? God first, man second. Both are important, but God has to come first. If you don't love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, you will never be able to love man as yourself. It has to be in that order, Jesus says. I want you to know the Lord's Prayer is no different than the Ten Commandments. It's no different than the greatest commandments. It's the same order. God first, man second. Look at it with me. If you look at verses 9 and 10, the first part of the Lord's Prayer, that deals with who? God. The phrase in verse 9, your name. The phrase in verse 10, your kingdom and your will. It's talking about God. That God's name, his kingdom, and his will should be acknowledged first in prayer because the second part of the Lord's Prayer, verses 11 through 13, that's when you finally get to man's need. Look at the phrases as it, the second part deals with man. Verse 11, it talks about man's daily bread. Verse 12, man's debts. Verse 13, man's temptation. So God first, man second. Now, what does this world teach us about that kind of philosophy? It'll teach us the exact opposite. This world will teach you that you're number one and you need to look out for that number one. Make God second or maybe just forget about God altogether. Actually, just pull out God when you need him if it's a tragedy. You do what you got to do to make your life right with you. There's no lordship here. Um, just look out for you. That's what the world will tell you. But Jesus comes to us and he corrects all of that. He teaches us our vertical should drive our horizontal. What we know about God determines the way we live our lives. In fact, what we know about God determines the way we pray. Dr. Kelly once said it this way. 
The key to life's meaning and the key to true prayer is God first and mankind second. It doesn't mean that, man, that God is not concerned about man. We obviously know God has the greatest concern about man. But until we properly understand who God is and what his will is, what his kingdom is, we can't understand what God would want for us and for others in this world. God first, man second. Well, that brings us to our final point. This opening preface of the Ten Commandments, the text says it this way. Our Father in heaven. Two parts, our Father and secondly, in heaven. When we talk about our Father, we're talking about what I call the eminence of God. That means that God is near. He's close. He's personal. He's relational. Wasn't that such a joyful answer to, answer to prayer about the, the Sifford family? I mean, they got a little girl now. That's great. Adoption. What a beautiful picture of love. Adoption. I know that not only for the Siffords, but for many of you in this congregation, adoption has been part of your lives. And it's been such a blessing to you and your family. Let's just talk about adoption for a second. And we'll use the Siffords as an example since we just learned about that this morning. In earthly adoption, the Siffords, you know what? They set their love and their affection on a child who did nothing to deserve it. They had to travel to get the child. They had to pay out money because there was a cost associated with an adoption. But now, little Abby has been brought into their family and she bears their name. Her last name will be Sifford. She has all the benefits and privileges and rights of being part of that family. And I want to ask you a question. When she's old enough, what is she going to call Ian? Is she going to call him Mr. Sifford? Of course she's not. She's going to call him Father. In fact, she's going to call him what? Daddy. She's going to call him Daddy. She's going to grow up in the context of a family that loves her, cares for her, and nurtures her. All this because she's been adopted into a family. And when she gets old enough, she's going to be able to come to her father, Ian, in a time of need. And we know that Ian will gather her into his arms, put her on her lap, and she can talk to her daddy probably about anything and everything that she wants to talk about. Isn't that beautiful? Picture of adoption. Now I want you to transition to God. Our call to worship this morning from Galatians chapter 4, Hunter read the text. It says that as believers, not only has Jesus forgiven our sin, but our God has taken us and put us into a family and God himself has adopted you and me 
into his family that we should be children of God. What does that mean? That means that God set his love and affection on people like you and me who did nothing to deserve it. That God traveled to get us. He traveled from heaven to earth. And Jesus, as the Siphers did, paid a price. The price for your adoption and mine was the life of the Son of God on the cross. Corinthians says we're bought with a price. So that you and I can be grafted into a family. And just as Abby will bear the name Sifford, you and I bear the name of our God. In Acts, we're called Christians. Those who follow after Christ, we bear his name. We have all the rights, benefits, privileges of being in the family of God. So what does Jesus tell us to call God? Are we supposed to say, Mr. Deity? Are we supposed to say, oh, great force that's somewhere out there in the distance? Jesus says to us who've been adopted, you can say, our Father. And in Galatians, Paul goes even further. He says, you can call him Daddy. Do you remember that phrase that Hunter read a moment ago? Abba. Abba. You can call him Abba Father. The Spirit of God puts the words Abba Father in our hearts. What does Abba mean? We know the New Testament was written in Greek. So Paul's writing this Greek letter to the Galatians, and right in the middle of the book, he puts an Aramaic word, Abba. Why would he do that? You see, in first century Israel, the affectionate term that a child would use for his or her father was that Aramaic term, Abba. It's phonetically easy to say. In fact, say it, Abba. It sounds like dada in English, just phonetically easy to say. You know, in English, oftentimes dada is the first word that rolls off a child's tongue because it's phonetically easy to say. That's the same word in Aramaic, Abba. It's phonetically easy to say. And it's the word that means daddy. It's that close, personal, intimate term that an adopted child of God would use to call out to their heavenly father, Abba, father, daddy. Now, what does any of this have to do with prayer? Do you see what Christ has done for you? Not only has he ushered you into the presence of God by removing your sin for you, but he's now taken you and put you in the family of God where that you can look up, not at some impersonal force that's off in the distance, not at Mr. Deity, but you can look at your Father. You can call out to Abba in prayer that God will take you as his child, hold you, embrace you, and you can share with him what's on your heart in your life. That is the benefit of having a father to pray to. Yet he's not only our father, an eminent God, but the second part, he's in heaven, which talks about his transcendence. 
Father says, I'm close, I'm personal, I'm intimate. In heaven says, God's saying, I'm powerful. I'm unlimited by space and by time. All of us are limited by space and time. But God, he transcends that. He's above space. He's above time. The Bible says there's no limits on his wisdom, his love, his purity, his majesty. Yet even though he is so infinite, so transcendent, he still comes all the way down to where we are and says, you can call me Abba. You can call me Father. He's the powerful, personal God. What are some things we can take away from this sermon this morning about prayer? A few final thoughts. You know, maybe you're here today and you've never prayed or you've never had a consistent life of prayer. God is calling you to that today. First of all, do you see what Jesus' life work does for you in prayer? Do you see that you will be heard, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done for you and ushered you behind the curtain in front of his father, that you can come boldly as a child would come to his father? Are there any issues of hypocrisy or mindlessness that we need to get rid of in prayer? These are things that we need to personally look at. Jesus says these are struggles that you could have in prayer. Do we see the example? God first, man second. And we need to ask the question, are we putting God's will, his kingdom first in our prayers? Or is God simply an afterthought? And finally, do you realize you can address him as Abba Father? That he's adopted you into his family. He is so transcendent yet so imminent at the same time. He's teaching us how to pray. And as all of us get ready to take a next step as a church into a new building, I hope that all of us can pray these things. I hope that all of us can pray that we will always put God first in this new building that we're getting ready to go in. That we will pray and teach the life work of Jesus in that building. Let us pray that we engage our minds and our hearts with the Lord as we enter that building. Let us pray that many more people might be adopted into the family of God. As we go into this building, let us pray that people will know the God who is infinite yet imminent at the same time. Let us pray. Pray with me, please.